In my first video on this subject, I suggested that, given the relationship between politics and culture, whether politics truly is downstream from culture or not, and given current states of affairs, the right, specifically the Christian right, is going to have to dig in for prolonged trench warfare as we begin to reclaim Christendom. Now, in saying that, I don't mean reclaiming the territory once known as Christendom. I don't mean a reconquista, though I would like to see that happen in Europe. I mean, if you will, the idea of Christendom, an idea abandoned, on my view, in the post-Enlightenment era and due to Enlightenment ideological propaganda, which resulted in the relegation of religious conviction to a matter of the heart as the seat of emotion, expressed best in the works of Friedrich Schleiermacher, who, rather than critiquing the Enlightenment doctrines, sought simply to reconcile those doctrines with Protestant Christianity and reinterpreted the Christian faith as subjective religious experience. When that bit of propaganda was accepted by Christians, or at least a sufficient number of them, the idea of Christendom was doomed. Christendom was grounded in a culture informed by Christianity, a grounding which presumes that Christianity is not merely a system of personal devotion with no relation to the world outside the human heart, but rather that the Christian faith makes objective claims about the world and about human beings, claims which have implications for culture, claims which, when believed by a large enough segment of the population, will result in a culture different from what it might otherwise have been. What is odd is that this Enlightenment view is the view of most evangelicals today, many of whom will pray for revival or that America will turn back to God or what have you, and have no idea that their own view of the relation of the faith to culture, including politics, makes it almost impossible for that faith to have any effect on culture, while at the same time the culture is certainly having an effect on them. The effects they say they want the faith to have on culture will produce something legitimately called Christendom, but they work against their own desires by rejecting the idea of Christendom on the basis of Enlightenment and post-Enlightenment thinking. However, as I'll explain in a moment, they think this is based on Scripture. Now, one implication of this is that the reclamation of Christendom requires sustained critique of Enlightenment thought, which skeptics, atheists, and others will hear as an attack on reason, science, and all that they regard as holy. What I'm really talking about, however, is an assault on the Enlightenment as a manifestation of what Dutch philosopher Hermann Dooyeweerd referred to as the autonomy of theoretical thought. Theoretical thought is grounded upon assumptions which are religious in nature. In contrast with the Enlightenment's view of religion, which is that it has no place in the public square, a Christian critique will assert that, given the religious bases of all theoretical thought, the issue is that religious make truth claims and truth claims belong in the public square. There is a uniquely Christian theoretical thought, not based on materialist and naturalistic assumptions, in contrast with secularism, materialism, and scientism, which are based on materialist and naturalistic assumptions assumptions accepted with no proof or supporting evidence, but which are actually taken to the evidence and employed to interpret the evidence. The materialist and naturalist assumptions of atheists, skeptics, and others are just as religious in nature as any Christian intellectual commitments. So, no, one's faith is not properly relegated to the periphery of life. I'll have to come back to the critique of Enlightenment assumptions another time, perhaps. 
My purpose right now is simply to explain the role of Enlightenment propaganda in the rejection of Christendom. Back to the topic at hand. Although the idea of reclamation might connote retaking lost territory, I am again not talking about a reconquista. I am talking firstly and foremostly about the reclamation of an idea. I would illustrate it in this way. In the second volume of the Chronicles of Narnia, Prince Caspian, the Pevensey children, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, return to Narnia, taken from our world without warning. They stumble upon a castle on an island and decide to make camp there. The castle is grown over with trees and vines in complete and utter ruin. Slowly, as they explore, they come to realize that this castle is Caerperaville, where they once reigned as kings and queens for years before returning to our world. The final realization comes when they discover the, tre the castle's treasure room, rather, still filled with all the treasure they left behind. In similar fashion, Christendom is still there, grown over and covered with bramble and brush, waiting to be rediscovered and reclaimed and restored to its former grandeur. The trees must be pruned, the garden tilled, fertilized, and replanted. The broken windows and rotted doors must be replaced. Since I am working with the definition of Christendom as a civilization which orients its members toward the kingdom of heaven, the reclamation involves the promise of an experience of the kingdom here in the world, but to be clear, a subjective experience of an object of reality, even if only in seminal form. This reclamation of Christendom as a civilization which orients its members toward the kingdom of heaven must begin with focusing on our own orientation toward the kingdom of heaven, an orientation which evangelicals, being mostly dispensational, do not really have, given their sole focus on evangelism, getting people saved and ready for the rapture or the second coming, as I explained previously. There is, and can be, no experience of the kingdom in this world, or as they might call the present dispensation, the church age. Now, I don't mean to argue that evangelicals are not kingdom-oriented at all. It is simply that there is, on a dispensational view, no possibility of any manifestation of the kingdom here on earth prior to the second coming. There is no concept of a civilization that orients people to the kingdom. There is no concept that such a civilization is possible or even desirable. In fact, I recently had a brief discussion on this subject on Facebook. And here is how my interlocutor summarized his position on why a Christian culture or civilization is both impossible and undesirable. And I'm quoting now. Christendom is not born-again disciples of Jesus Christ following the Master. Christian culture belongs to the category of the world. There are only two things that really exist in this world, Adam and Christ. Humans are either in Adam or in Christ. To be in Adam is to be a part of the world system that has been judged already. To be in Christ is to have been transferred into the kingdom of heaven by faith in him as Savior. The true Christian culture is the kingdom culture. The vast majority of what is considered Christian isn't. The real kingdom culture is the worldwide process of being discovered and lived in by brothers and sisters seeking it with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and the power of the Holy Spirit opening the eyes of their hearts. All that does not originate in Christ is flesh and of the world or the evil one. 
and the vast majority of what we call Christian does not truly originate in Christ and has its origin in the world, and I believe I stand on scriptural ground here. End quote. I could argue that this argument implicitly denies the Incarnation and perhaps even embraces Nestorianism by ignoring the cultural ramifications of the coming into the world of the eternally begotten Son of God. But, sticking to just what he says, his position is that civilization, or culture, belongs to the category of the world. This dovetails with my own observation in my very first video on the subject that for evangelicals, the only thing worthy of being called, the only thing properly called, Christian, is the individual Christian, the born-again Christian. In reply, I summarize my own position as follows, quoting again. Very few people believe that thinking of a culture as Christian involves confusing that culture with the kingdom and believing that the members of Christendom are all born-again Christians. Yes, culture and civilization originate in the world. It cannot be otherwise. We live in the world and produce things in the world, and our productions are culture. So there will be culture. Yes, this does mean culture is a human production in the world. But for Christendom, that is not the issue. The issue is what is the motif of any given culture. In the same way that a culture with a secular motif is legitimately called a secular culture, despite the fact that not all of its members are themselves secular. A culture with Christianity as its motif is legitimately called Christian, without any suggestion that all of its members are born-again disciples. Because I believe in the notion of the cultural mandate, I don't think people who espouse your position, that is, my interlocutor's position, do truly stand on scriptural grounds. And because the kingdom is not a human production, I do not believe it correct to say that the true Christian culture is the kingdom culture. End quote. So, my position is that, no, a Christian civilization and culture is not the body of born-again disciples following the Master. And this is why I think we should not define Christendom in that manner. Our definition of Christendom makes a clear distinction between Christendom and the Kingdom of Heaven. Evangelicals seem unable, or more likely unwilling, to grasp this. They will claim that the spread of the Gospel can and will change a society. They will even pray that this occurs. They will pray for what they call revival. They will pray for the conversions of their family, their friends, and their neighbors, believing that these conversions will result in a changed society. Ask them to describe this changed society, and it will sound an awful lot like Christendom. And yet, their denial of Christendom is effectively a denial of the possibility of a changed society. So much for the short-term goal of reclaiming Christendom. The long-term goal will be the emanation of the transformational power of this reclaimed Christendom. Of course, as I continue to reiterate, it will be different from that Christendom with which we are familiar from historical studies. It will be different because of several changes which will probably not be undone or undone anytime soon. And I'm not too sure what I mean by soon. For example, the Bishop of Rome will probably not relinquish the prerogatives he has garnered over the last nearly 1,000 years and return to his status as first among equals, or even simply an equal to all other bishops. The Eastern Orthodox will insist upon this. Roman Catholics and Protestants will probably not drop the filioque, 
from the Western formulation of the Nicene-Constantinopolitan Creed. Again, the Eastern Orthodox will insist upon this. Protestants, perhaps I should say many or most Protestants, will probably not change their minds on the issue of justification by faith alone, the joint declaration on the doctrine of justification notwithstanding. Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox will insist upon rejection of justification by faith alone. Protestants will probably not change their minds about the relation of scripture and tradition to each other, and continue to hold that while tradition is indeed a source of knowledge regarding faith, morals, and worship, scripture alone is the only infallible rule of faith, morals, and worship, or sola scriptura. Calvinists will not jettison their extension of St. Augustine's understanding of the biblical teaching on predestination. Aside from Anglicans, Protestants will not accept an Episcopal form of government, rather, insisting that this is one of those issues upon which tradition needs to be corrected by both scripture and, ironically enough, older tradition. Most Protestants will continue to reject the veneration of saints, particularly the offering up of petitions to them. This listing is, of course, a small sampling. It does, however, make my point about how a reclaimed Christendom will differ from earlier iterations. The unity of this neo-Christendom will therefore have to be spiritual in nature rather than organic, and it will require charitable concessions all around. Before moving on, I want to discuss two ideas which I believe will help. If we think of culture as the cumulative deposit of knowledge, experience, beliefs, values, attitudes, meanings, hierarchies, notions of time, roles, including sex roles, parental roles, and so on, all grounded upon a conception of the universe, upon very fundamental, properly basic beliefs, beliefs which are religious in nature, then we may think of, one, a subculture as a unique culture that exists within a larger dominant culture and remains distinct from it. And we may also think of, two, a counterculture as a subculture which challenges the dominant culture by engaging and interacting with it. Evangelicals have shied away from thinking of Christianity as a subculture, the assumption being that subculture entails total detachment and withdrawal from mainstream life. Being subcultural is, to many, the worst thing in the world. But the fact is, in relation to American culture, Christianity is a subculture. Christianity has the markers of a unique culture as I defined it a moment ago. By virtually any understanding of culture, Christianity right now is a subculture. The only other option is to be well within the mainstream, in other words, a civilization and accommodation. Evangelicalism, by attempting to engage the culture without being subcultural, has assimilated to the dominant American culture and accommodates it in many ways, something I addressed in my very first video on this subject. And so, the reason, thinking in terms of sub and counterculture, is that by not being subcultural, evangelicalism could not be countercultural and truly challenge the dominant culture. By contrast, the Christianity which transformed the Roman Empire was a Christianity which saw itself as something apart from the mainstream Greco-Roman culture. That Christianity was a subculture, a culture of the catacombs. It was by rejecting Greco-Roman culture, not by attempting to influence it, 
that Christians challenged that culture, especially in the refusal to honor the emperors as gods. And that Christianity challenged just about everything, including the cosmology, the morality, and, very importantly, the epistemology of the Greco-Roman world. If they had done things the way evangelicals, and really most other Christians as well, counsel us to do today, then that Christianity would never have become the dominant religion in the Roman Empire. That Christianity set its face against just about everything the Greco-Roman world stood for. That Christianity did not seek merely to influence Greco-Roman culture, for Greco-Roman culture was at enmity with God. Evangelicals seem to believe Christianity, or as some preferred the Judeo-Christian world and life view, is still a vibrant part of the dominant American culture. But when you can be forced to take pictures, when you can be forced to bake cakes or any number of things over and above your objections, then your world and life view is not a vibrant part of the dominant culture. The dominant culture doesn't care about you, and you need to wake the heck up. Now, I want to discuss Christendom itself, particularly its foundation and objectives. In referring to Christendom, Christendom rather, as a civilization with a supporting culture that, under the influence of traditional Christianity, orients its members toward the kingdom of heaven, we need to understand the meaning of the important terms. We need to understand what is meant by the kingdom of heaven, and equally important, what is not meant. Since the civilization we're talking about is supported by a culture influenced by historic Christianity, we will also need to discuss the culturally relevant features of historic Christianity, that is, the pillars of historic Christianity. And finally, we will need to discuss how this supporting culture orients its members toward the kingdom of heaven. So what then is the kingdom of heaven? As briefly as possible, the ultimate expression of the kingdom is the direct rule of Christ on earth as he comes, or rather when, he comes in glory at the end of the age. One thing upon which Christians and Jews agree is that only the Messiah, only the Christ, can inaugurate the kingdom of God on earth. In the present age, the kingdom of God is the direct rule of Christ in the hearts of his people who obey him or seek to do so from love rather than from fear of punishment. The visible expression of this kingdom is his body, the church. But when we talk about Christendom as a civilization which orients people toward the kingdom of heaven, it would be wrong to point people or orient them to the church. The church, as the community of saints and those called to be saints, can do nothing apart from her head, Jesus Christ. So to say that Christendom is a civilization which orients its members toward the kingdom of heaven is to say that Christendom is a civilization which orients its members toward Christ himself, since the kingdom of heaven both in its present visible expression and in its future fullness is his kingdom, his rule in our hearts both now and most fully in the age to come. Naturally, the usual suspects, hearing someone talking about reclaiming Christendom, We'll start their caterwauling about theocracy. We'll hear about the Salem witch trials, the persecution of Galileo, and the church's anti-science stance, among other things. We'll hear warnings about the coming executions of homosexuals, adulterers, and adulteresses, and of children who smart off to their parents, girls being forced to marry men who rape them, and so on. And it is beyond my present scope to discuss or refute theonomy 
But I will say that those of us who would seek to reclaim Christendom as a civilization orienting people to Christ must ensure that our focus is on Christ himself and on that obedience which is the result of his ruling in our hearts and our love for him. Making people behave, particularly on pain of death, may give us a civilization filled with people who don't do things like commit adultery, engage in sodomy, but it won't be a civilization whose members are pointed in the direction of Jesus Christ. We should probably also be mindful that the law which Theonomists wished to institute was given to a people, Israelites, who constituted a type of the kingdom of heaven. The law is the law of the kingdom of heaven. The nations which comprised Christendom, and which will, by God's grace, comprise a reclaimed Christendom, were not, and will not be, the kingdom of heaven. The reason for this is that earthly kingdoms, even the best of them, are human creations. They are founded by humans, in many cases by conquest and the use of violence, the shedding of blood, the blood of both conquerors and conquered. And even if they are not created in this fashion, they are ruled by sinners. The kingdom of heaven also involves the shedding of blood, but in this case the blood shed is that of the ruler, not the subjects. The kingdom of heaven is the direct rule of Christ the King in the hearts of his people, united to him by the Holy Spirit. These nations are not ruled directly by Christ. Earthly kingdoms, even the best, even those governed by people desirous of governing by Christian principles, being of this world, cannot offer that. So, in contrast with earthly kingdoms, the kingdom of heaven, being not of this world, is brought into the world by Christ and is given to us by his coming, a kingdom not of this world, but of his Father, a kingdom of everlasting life in union with the Holy Trinity. The kingdom of heaven, therefore, is life in and with God. Life is communicated to us in the church through Christ and the Holy Spirit. It is a life in which we worship and obey God and do his will by the presence and power of his Spirit. This is the kingdom of God, life in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom is really here, but here and now it is here in symbol and sacrament. At the end of the ages, this kingdom will come with observation, with power and glory, when Christ will be revealed and God will be all in all. But right now, it is through symbol and sacrament. Of course, the need for a civilization to have laws does raise the question theonomists ask. Where does a civilization, with a supporting culture influenced by Christianity and having the purpose of orienting its members toward the kingdom of heaven, derive its laws. The most obvious answer is, of course, the Torah, and so it's no wonder that theonomists seek to make it the law of the land, after properly distinguishing its parts, moral, judicial, ceremonial. For others, the law was given to God's covenant people, the nation of Israel, the earthly type of the heavenly kingdom. The law is for that kingdom, for that covenant people. The fact that the particular polity to which and for which the law was given no longer exists is highly relevant. My denomination's doctrinal expression, the Westminster Confession of Faith, in chapter 19 explains it substantially as follows. God entered into a covenant with Adam and gave him a law. The terms of the covenant bound Adam and his posterity to personal and perpetual obedience, and it promised life upon fulfilling and death upon breaching this law. 
After the fall, the law continued as a perfect rule of righteousness and was delivered in fuller expression in the Ten Commandments. In addition to the moral law in the Ten Commandments, God gave to the people of Israel various laws called ceremonial laws, which contained several typical ordinances related to worship, and also prefiguring the Messiah's graces, actions, sufferings, and benefits. Being chiefly concerned with the temple worship and the Messiah, who is both the true temple and final sacrifice, this body of law is abrogated under the new covenant. Since Israelites were a political body, God also gave them various judicial laws, instructions in how to apply the moral law. It might be correct to think of these judicial laws as the basis of a common law system since they did not come into operation in the absence of a legal suit or criminal accusation. Because these judicial laws were given specifically to Israel, which no longer exists, they expired together with that political body. That said, the general equity of these judicial laws is still applicable. Now, there's more on the subject of this in the Confession of Faith, but that will do for my present purposes. And I may say more about theonomy in a subsequent video, but for now I just want to say that this understanding of the law as it was given to the people of Israel makes its application as the law of the land in other nations somewhat questionable. The law was given to God's covenant people. Applying the law given to God's covenant people to people outside the covenant just seems problematic to most Christians. And this is why the theonomist position has largely been the minority report among Christians. So, to summarize all this, reclaiming Christendom does not, as a matter of necessary implication, mean taking the theonomist approach, an approach, given the nature of the law, which would effectively attempt to institute the kingdom here on earth. Christendom, again, is not the kingdom. It is a civilization which points to the kingdom. I know many theonomists personally, and they all believe that Christians are called to create cultures which could legitimately be called Christian. But they also believe that the foundation of such a culture is the law. I think we must account for the fact that there was a nation of Israel centuries before the law was given, and that this nation had a culture long before the law was given. This, of course, raises the question, what then is the foundation of Christendom? In thinking, again, of culture as the cumulative deposit of knowledge, experience, beliefs, values, attitudes, meanings, hierarchies, notions of time, all grounded upon a certain conception of the universe, upon fundamental, properly basic beliefs, beliefs which are religious in nature. It should be clear that the law of Moses is not the source of these things. So the question which we now come to is, what is the source of that certain conception of the universe, that very fundamental, properly basic set of beliefs that form the foundation of Christendom? That is, if the law is not fundamental to Christendom, then what is? The answer is historic Christianity, or more specifically, the four pillars of historic Christianity. And here let me define briefly what I mean by historic Christianity. Simply put, I mean the orthodox, with a lowercase o, Christianity the Trinitarian faith as defined by the Nicene-Constantinopolitan Creed and practiced up until early in the 20th century when the modernists became the face of Protestant Christianity and gained a significant foothold in the Roman Catholic Church, which marks the point in American history 
when theological conservatives, especially among Protestants, began retreating from culture, a problem which, as I said in my previous video, the evangelical movement intended to resolve. Now that faith is still with us. My use of the word historic is not intended to indicate otherwise. By use of the term, however, I do wish to exclude those who reject the Nicene-Constantinopolitan creed, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Oneness Pentecostals, and so forth. In that installment of this series, which I called Christendom and the Great Commission, looking at St. Peter's sermon recorded in the second chapter of Acts, I said evangelism has to include instruction in the Law and the Prophets, especially in a culture that is increasingly, if not completely, biblically illiterate. It has to include honest instruction about the costs entailed in discipleship. It has to include instruction on what is expected of those who make a decision for Christ. And what is expected is found in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, which reads, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. End quote. So, the four pillars of Christianity are the apostolic teaching, in which I would include repentance, baptism, and evangelical calling in the world. Two, the fellowship, the understanding of the church as a community of saints and those called to be saints. Third, the Eucharist, or Holy Communion. And fourth, prayer. The teaching of the Apostles, as summarized in the Apostles' Creed, has formed the outline of systematic treatments of the Christian faith for Christians of all denominations. It formed the outline for the Catechism of the Catholic Church, as well as for John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion. But for present purposes, I want to employ the canonical summary and symbol of the faith, the Nicene-Constantinopolitan Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures, and descended into heaven, and sits on the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified who spoke by the prophets. And I believe one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Now this creed summarizes what we find insisted on in the New Testament and reflected in Christian theological reflection for centuries. But for purposes of my present discussion, Christendom and its relation to traditional Christianity, I want to focus on three aspects of the teaching, repentance, baptism, and evangelical calling. 